Michigan healthcare legislation directly impacts both the day-to-day activity and long-term sustainability of healthcare organizations. If rural hospitals want to be involved, we have to stay as updated as we can and rely on connections with rural health advocates. So, how do hospitals contribute to advocacy for rural healthcare legislation? With state-level advocates, collaboration with like-minded leaders, and a deeper understanding of current healthcare legislation. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm JJ Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to episode 139 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, our guest today is someone uh, who's pretty cool, all right? I agree. A good guy, a great guy, not only because he works at Michigan Hospital Association, he's a Notre Dame fan. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we could just close in prayer right now, but we're not mm-hmm. going to. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of questions, but it's it's a guy who's been working very hard, uh, professional, consummate professional, uh, advocating for hospitals, rural hospitals, big hospitals, mid-sized hospitals, doesn't matter, advocating for hospitals in Michigan uh, to ensure that those hospitals are sustainable for those rural communities and communities throughout Michigan. So I'm excited today to have someone here very special uh, that I work with at the Michigan House Hospital Association. That's right. We are talking with someone who is truly an expert in Michigan's healthcare legislation, also has all the relationships and connections with all the folks um, at the state house that are important to the work that we do in healthcare, so that we can make sure those folks understand what our needs are. And he was also our uh, tour guide, basically, whenever we uh, went for the Rural Health Advocacy Day that MHA hosted in September of 22, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Kept yeah, to that strict so. schedule. We wanted to talk right. to people, but we couldn't. That's right. Well, our guest today, without further ado, is Adam Carlson, Senior Vice President of Advocacy at Michigan Health and Hospital Association, also known as MHA. So the best thing to have you here in the studio is that uh, you are an advocate for our hospital. And I know all hospitals probably say that, you know, and we like to take credit, you know, for knowing Adam, uh, because truly when he is advocating for a hospital, he's all in. He knows about Hillsdale. He knows the challenges of Hillsdale. That's a good perspective that he has. But beyond that, he takes a broader approach, which is what are we doing as an industry? And how are we licensing our professionals? And how are we getting paid? And really advocating all of those facets in Lansing. It is a job I would never want. It is fascinating in one realm, probably most challenging in another. So it's great to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I don't even know what to do with that gracious uh, introduction. <laughs> Usually in politics, you under-promise and over-deliver here, JJ. <laughs> exactly. so you... It's all right. We're, we're going to well, be all right. That was us under <laughs> Yeah, exactly, because you're going to be awesome. Yeah. So welcome again to Rural Health Rising. We look forward to our conversation today. So to start, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at MHA? Sure, absolutely. So I'm the Senior Vice President of Advocacy at the MHA. It's really just a fancy way of saying lobbyist. So I'm one of (laughs) our day-to-day lobbyists here, uh, working in the state capital of Michigan in Lansing. Originally, I am from a rural area. I grew up in a small town called Dwajak, which is down in southwest Michigan. Um, and so have very fond memories of my time growing up there. I've been in Lansing for about 15 years now, working in various, uh, various different things, studied poli-sci, um, and so came up through the campaign world, worked for state lawmakers for a number of years, worked for the state of Michigan for a number of years, and now very pleased to be advocating for hospitals. Yeah. So, Adam, I don't know, what did you do for the state of Michigan? You, I worked in the state of Michigan budget office, so you I was did. one of a budget specialist. Yes. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Budget nerd. Wow. That had to be quite the transition. Yes. Going from that to, you know, advocacy for rural hospitals and hospitals in general. 
Well, and, you know, a lot of people don't think about the fact of the matter is, is hospitals have such predominant government payers of Medicaid and Medicare. And mm-hmm. so state They're budget, our biggest customer. State yep. budget is incredibly important. It it's is. one of those things that's often Leaded overlooked, it. yeah. um, but it, it has massive significance there. So it was a bit of a transition, but, you know, the mission of the MHA is advancing the health of individuals and communities. Yeah. And that's something that personally everyone has experienced either healthcare issues themselves or with a loved one. And it's one of those things that's like... Yeah, I feel really good about what I do every day because that's that's what I get to work for. Well, let's talk about that. So, you know, we ask this on every podcast, uh, and it's just called The Why. And it allows us and our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Um, what is your why? In other words, what motivates you to do the work that you do every day, which sometimes thankless, uh, and to get up every morning and to pursue these types of things? Why do you do it? What's your why? First of all, I love it. I got into politics because I got bit by the bug, (laughs) thought I wanted to run for office, changed my mind really quick after working one campaign. Yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) That'll do it. That was a terrible idea. That'll do it. It will. But, uh, you know, advancing the health of individuals and communities, I get up every day and my job is to educate, right? So I work Mm -hmm. with lawmakers. I make sure they understand the impact that their policies are going to have, especially with rural health care. Um, you know, we we're talking today, Hillsdale Hospital has been here for over 100 years, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of people think, um, lawmakers included, that it's always going to be there in the future yeah. every day to come because mm-hmm. it's been there for 100 years. Right. Why wouldn't it be there 100 more? Right. 100 more? They don't think about the countless decisions that go into every single day making sure that that hospital remains mm-hmm. successful. And so my job is to go and educate them of saying, okay, when you're looking at this policy, when you're thinking about this, here's the impact it's going to have on hospitals. A lot of them think they know how hospitals are run because they've been inside of a hospital before, um, but they they don't know all of the nuances to it. They don't know the aspects of Medicaid and Medicare like what we do. And so that's our job is to educate them. Mm-hmm. And what a task for you to go educate legislators who are maybe some of them don't feel they need to be educated. That's, that's <laughs> got to be a tough process for you. Yes. And, and I can't imagine, you know, some of the challenges. I know who you've tackled in the past, and I commend you for it. Uh, the good news, Rachel, is that he just has a way about him where, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you, you break down those barriers and you've established that credibility. And I think that goes a long way. So your why is very important to our success. I just want you to know that. Yeah. And also, I will point out that not only do you educate lawmakers, but you help educate us as hospitals and healthcare organizations mm-hmm. to help us make sure that we understand the reality of certain legislation, that we understand the background, right? I remember at one of our legislative policy panel meetings, we were talking about nurse staffing ratios. And as you're explaining, like, these are all the pragmatic realities of this. And I I think I asked you a question, something about like, so what, what is the argument for nurse staffing ratios that can overcome all of these very specific, very clear points, right? And you were able to help us, like, understand this is what the other side is kind of saying. This is how they're pitching it. But there has been no response to these specific um, issues that show why it's not a good idea. That's just been ignored. And it's been sticking to the party line kind of message, not party line, but sticking to the message that they already had about the issue, not actually responding to us saying, well, actually, here's the real story. Mm-hmm. So you help us to, Absolutely. to understand and to Absolutely. know where and, and to know where and when we need to jump in right. directly right. to to get involved. He's so. helped me back a few times. JJ, don't do that yet. <laughs> don't call him. It's not necessary. And I think that's important. We it need is. that uh, EI. We really do. Right. So, Adam, let's kind of do a broad 
broad overview here for healthcare legislation in Michigan for this year. What key strategies is MHA looking at and advocating for? So we're in a weird year for Michigan politics right now. Our our state house is evenly divided, 54-54. So mm-hmm. for anything to pass, it's got to be bipartisan. Right. Not surprisingly, you know, there's a lot of disagreement, partisan disagreement. And so we don't expect a lot of things to mm-hmm. move forward in the short term unless it's overwhelmingly, strongly bipartisan. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing we're watching right now, and you mentioned it, Rachel, is nurse staffing ratios. Right. Mm-hmm. These the one-size-fits-all government mandates uh, would have such a huge impact mm-hmm. on patient access to care in our state. We've seen it in a lot of other states. I think it's been proposed in, um, mm-hmm. I think, 17 other states have seen laws like this proposed. Luckily, very few have enacted them because lawmakers have understood the arguments against them, the impact it would have mm-hmm. on, uh, on the delivery of healthcare services. So that's our biggest one. There's other ones where we're hopeful to get some action. Protecting 340B hospitals mm-hmm. um, is another key piece, making sure that, you know, the pharmaceutical companies come in, they put more and more strings on 340B programs, they try and undermine it in every way. The they, way I refer to it is they've decided to be judge, jury, and executioner based on the perceived violations they assume 340B hospitals are making. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And they have teams of lawyers who come up with new ways and new ways to try and get around those laws at at all the time. So so obviously it's important at the federal level, but we've seen states jump in on 340B now because they figured out, okay, the, the federal government isn't doing anything on that. We need to act and make sure we're protecting our 340B entities going forward. So we have legislation like that in Michigan that further protect 340B entities from these attacks from pharmaceutical manufacturers that we're going to be mm-hmm. pushing forward. And then lastly, I would mention behavioral health. Mm-hmm. We know it's been a huge issue, um, but trying to pursue more policies here at the state level to assist with that, um, especially the individuals who are in the emergency department awaiting transfer. Mm-hmm. So Adam, I, I would submit to you that Maybe it's the best environment right now in Lansing, because if you think about it, you know, there's not a lot of impassioned, you know, pleas. If, if they can't get behind one project, that could be beneficial for us. And, and I don't mm-hmm. say us as in healthcare, but I mean, really just maybe a cooling off period, right? Maybe it's an opportunity for us to look at some of this legislation and, and have some conversations. So as it, as it relates to that, um, you know, the nurse staffing ratio was a big piece and you did mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of work. Uh, and I would say single-handedly, and I've shared this with you, uh, you were very successful in diverting a significant crisis to this state because, to your point, one size does not fit all. Uh, for my hospital, Adam, I'm not being dramatic. We would have probably closed because we can't, number one, you can't find the nurses, right? And and you can't, even if you find those nurses, you can't afford to hire them when you don't have the volume uh, in the payer mix, that's very good. So in communities like ours, 70% is now almost 72% Medicaid and Medicare. Medicaid doesn't even cover the cost of us doing business and with the Medicare. So so the one-size-fit-all mentality, I, I guess w- to my point, is maybe it's a good time in the legislature right now uh, <laughs> yeah. in that you, we get a little bit of time to educate them. But speaking of that, maybe just educate us a little bit What's going to happen in the House, in the Senate, in the next—when when will this change? When will the pendulum swing where we'll know 
which side it's going to land. So there's been uh, special elections called to fill the two vacancies that caused the 54-54 tie. Um, those are, are slated to occur in April. So starting in May and June of this year in Michigan, we should have, we'll probably be back to the same Democratic majorities in the okay. House and the Senate. We have a Democratic governor. So that will all probably go back into place right around the middle of April. Mm-hmm. What they have to do, um, it's the only thing we always joke about. It's the only thing the legisl- legislature has to do every year is the budget. Yeah. So they have to do the budget. That will be the focus of right. May and June. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see what else they what else they want to work on. But to your point, JJ, we can't stop telling our story no. about the right. impact that these ratios would have. That's and right. they do have an outside in, outsized impact on rural healthcare yeah. facilities, mm-hmm. especially when you think about these smaller ones where if there's a car accident in front of the hospital and there's four people in the car, all of a sudden they're out of ratio. And right. all of a sudden they're looking at a $50,000 fine because yeah. they cared for all four individuals yeah. in the car accident. Right. Yeah. And a reasonable person would say, no, we want that hospital to still yeah. care for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the law sets up a way where it's a Solomon's choice here. Yeah. Do I care for the patient and, and, mm-hmm. and break the law and take a $50,000 fine or, or do take, I transfer yeah. them? Or and, do I break the MTALA? law right, or and not provide time. emergency care. Well, and, you know, this podcast is national, so there are other states that are listening that are either considering nurse staffing ratios or have already implemented it and are speaking out against it. But, you know, you gave some compelling statistics. I was just going to ask for this. And, well, and I mean, uh, one of the things that, that you shared with us as a board was the number of vacancies uh, of nurses right now in uh, nurses that are in uh, the state of Michigan. And I think that's an important number. Uh, the other the other thing, the second part of that is what we hear is, well, if, if you have the ratios, then maybe nurses will come out of retirement and maybe they'll work. Can you address those two issues? Because those are the two biggest things that I hear. Absolutely. I mean, we have, as of right now, we have 8,500 job openings for registered nurses in the state of Michigan. So Incredible. if they all showed up tomorrow, hospitals in Michigan would hire all of them. Yeah. Right. Tomorrow. Would, tomorrow. That's right. Yes, exactly. And, you know, we, we hear this talking point a lot that individuals all of a sudden are going to flock back to the workforce. California has had nursing staffing ratios in place since 2002. They have not seen an influx. They have a shortage of 40,000 nurses right now, mm. even though they have ratios in mm-hmm. place. And so folks don't just flock back. No, so as you said, the people don't exist. And so what's the next thing that's going to occur is we're going to lose hospital beds that are staffed. And if these ratios in Michigan were to go into effect, we'd be down 5,100 hospital beds. It'd be basically the equivalent of closing every hospital north of Clare in the state of Michigan, mm. or mm-hmm. basically closing the six largest hospitals that we have in the state mm. is the number of beds that would be taken offline. And the impact is and the, patient care. Yeah, the access right. to care issues would yeah. be tremendous. Yeah. Well, and can you give us the realities of the states that have implemented this for however long? What have their quality outcomes been, Adam, as a they, result of nurse they staffing ratios? They have not ratios? seen a statistically significant difference in quality outcomes. Michigan, I mentioned California. Michigan has mm-hmm. a higher proportion of four- and five-star rated CMS facilities than the state of California. The patient the patient outcomes have not seen an impact as a result of the right. ratios, mm-hmm. and we have a long bibliography. Yeah. I'd be happy to share it yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, of stating that fact. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously changing the narrative um, – really reflecting on the fact of we need to build a talent pipeline, right? Uh, We can't address it on this end today. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I want to, I really want to hone in on something else. Um, You know, your role is unique because when you go to the meetings that you go to with MHA, you know, you got, you got big hospital executives there that are, you know, they, they have 
hundreds and hundreds of, you know, administrators and they, they have, you know, tens of thousands of people, uh, you, you have to be specific to them. You know, you have to walk up to our friends at uh, Henry Ford and say, hey, I know what your problems are. And then you got to look down at the table, you know, where the kids are down there, me and uh, <laughs> our friends. And you have to also know our situation. And so I guess I want to know, how do you balance that issue of rural health and urban health care? And how do you blend those together? Because sometimes our interests are not the same. You know, we have, sometimes we are on mm-hmm. different sides. You have a little bit of a tightrope uh, to walk sometimes there. So how do you do it? Because you have to represent all the members. So what I would say is, you know, the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, we have 100% membership of all the hospitals in the state Which of is Michigan. incredible because not all associations Not everybody right. does That's that. Right. That's and right. so I think that positions us in a unique way yeah. where um, when we speak with lawmakers, we were speaking with one voice and we said, no, we represent all hospitals in the state mm-hmm. of Michigan um, on, on this issue, whatever, you know, whichever issue right. that is at any given time. I think because of that, too, our board recognizes the value of having strong access access to care in mm-hmm. rural communities, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they have given us the latitude to advocate for things that are rural-specific. Yeah, so the absolutely. example, I think one of the most recent examples I have is CRNAs, right? So in for Michigan, sure. CRNAs, uh, up until a couple of years ago, did not have the ability to act independently. Um, and so our our larger urban members said, you know, maybe we're not going to do that. Maybe we're not going to utilize them in this scope. But we recognize the value that has for rural communities. That's and right. so, yes, the MHA right. should go and advocate yeah. for that. And you did it with gusto. It wasn't like it's like, Shh, you know, we're going to appease those little guys. But it was like, no, this is a priority. And you made a lot of a lot of waves. Not everybody liked that. Uh, and it was successful. And I think that, that, that example is a good example about how you blend all of those interests together. And, you know, the, one of the big issues that we're going to be facing, and I know it's not part of our discussion per se today, is certificate of need. And that is another issue that some hospitals are for and some are against. You know, I am for CON, uh, to the chagrin of many of my colleagues uh, in the party that I'm in. Uh, but at the end of the day, I feel it's important to preserve rural health and to preserve health care in Michigan so we don't have the influx of uh, hospital systems from Tennessee and other places taking our you know, folks back and taking our economy back to those communities. But that is, you know, that's a tightrope that you're walking every day. As we look at, you know, what the priorities are of the MHA, you know, you're there to serve every member. And we had Chris Mitchell on yesterday on our podcast. And uh, Chris, of course, is quite a card. Uh, and uh, he's running the Iowa uh, Hospital Association. And, you know, he's he has his hands full as well. A little different demographics there because he has critical access hospitals. Um, so talk to us about the relationship that critical access hospitals, rural hospitals, and the big urban hospitals play as it relates to MHA? Yeah, so again, I mean, they the MHA recognizes the cohesive nature and the fact that we need access to care in all of our communities in the state of Michigan. We have 35 critical access hospitals here in the state. Um, they play a vital role, and it's one of those where we've advocated um, previously on issues that are specific to them, swing beds being the example yes. uh, for mm-hmm. critical access hospitals where they're able to care for med surge patients or flip them over and use them for skilled mm-hmm. nursing right. facility patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we've continued to advocate for to make sure we have a strong program uh, to help serve that care in those mm-hmm. rural areas. Uh, real quick, uh, let me just pepper some other things at you. The, the emergency uh, hospital status for um, Michigan had the chance, and they did, uh, and they adopted the availability for hospitals to switch. Uh, it involves a, a quite a bit of a process, and I think it once you do it, you don't claw your way back out of it, from what I understand, 
don't know all the particulars. Um, but how how has that gone in Michigan? We have one hospital that has gone through that conversion. Um, that I think their situation was pretty unique mm-hmm. as to as to why they wanted to go down that road. Uh, we did have to pass state law in Michigan allowing that yeah. to occur as a certificate of need state. Um, and so we've had one that's that's done it and. Um, you know, is moving forward right now in that, under that. And I think it speaks to the volume of what, what I think what the intent behind it, and please correct me, is access, right? I mean, if you can't sustain your hospital as a non-for-profit, mid-sized or small rule, what could it be set up as? And if it's, even if it's emergent, the people in that community are served. And I think that's what we're facing right now across the state is, you know, 2010, since that time, 140 hospitals have closed, Adam. And majority of those are rural hospitals. And the question that you, stat is specifically rural. Yeah, specifically. Right. Wow. They're all rural. All rural. 140. I mean, that's just crazy to think about the impact of of that patient care in those communities. And so when you look at the the designated purpose of establishing the the access for emergency access hospital only, I think it begs the question of what you're trying to do at the MHA, which is preserve all hospitals, right? I mean, you have no dogs in the fight, whether they're big, small. It's to allow access for healthcare, And as that begins to dwindle, it has a negative impact to those respective communities. And, and you're seeing that. Uh, and I believe that's that's what was at the heart of it. And it's, uh, you know, access to health care is one of those base factors for economic development. It's usually mm-hmm. not talked about with economic development, yeah. but people don't want to locate in areas where right. they don't have access right. to health care. Right. So we talk about bringing jobs in. I direct you to episode in. four of Rural Health Rising when we had the <laughs> yeah. former Indiana Economic Development Corporation president um, on to yeah. talk about that very issue. Exactly. Yeah. So goes the community. Yes. You know, so, and that's that's a critical piece, I think, that you've brought up. in the relationship then that you play as an MHA, you're working with those entities as well. MEDC, you know, at some of our conferences in the summer, we have all of these folks running around and it, it makes sense. You've got to have partnerships with those folks to make this work. Absolutely. And this is where it's not just, you know, obviously I'm a day-to-day lobbyist at the state capitol for the for hospitals, but this is where hospital leaders across the country, everyone needs to play an active role. Politics is not mm-hmm. a spectator sport. That's right. Everyone can engage. That's the beauty of our country and a representative democracy. Reach out, establish contacts mm-hmm. with your lawmakers, build those relationships. We have a saying in, in, in our office that you can't make friends when you need them. Right. Mm, so, so build those relationships point. with those yeah. individuals. Let them know, especially your community leaders, let them know, you know, the challenges that you face. Make sure they're ready for it and then keep them informed. Keep those keep mm-hmm. those contacts. It's, it's great to have a, a lawmaker out. Give them a hospital tour or mm-hmm. give them a tour of your facility. Let them know your challenges. But mm-hmm. then keep that relationship alive mm-hmm. going forward so that, you know, when when your state level person like me comes in the office and says, hey, I want to talk to you about this. The best thing for me to hear is a lawmaker to say, nope, I've already talked to my local hospital leader about it. I've already talked to JJ. I know I know exactly You've heard the that challenge, multiple times. which I've heard many a time yeah. before. Yeah. 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 yeah, I've already heard the challenges. Yeah. And then I'm just there to reinforce it, which is fantastic. And I would encourage anyone in healthcare, you know, to make sure they're establishing those relationships with their state, local, federal elected officials. Sage mm-hmm. advice. Uh, if you're listening today and you have not done that, uh, we would encourage you to do it because it can be very powerful. And to Adam's point, you, you don't want to call them at the 11th hour when you need them mm-hmm. because it's a different relationship at you that time. You don't want to say, hi, nice to meet you. We need yeah. your immediate action on this issue. Absolutely. 
<laughs> engage them early and engage them often. Right. So, Adam, let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, what activity do you anticipate around healthcare data sharing legislation, and how will alignment of health systems and hospitals play a role in that? So that's that's something that we're we always continue to monitor at the federal level. The 21st Century Cares Act included some provisions there that um, tried to make sure that data sharing was possible across mm-hmm. different health systems and hospitals. Um, we've seen the feds come back, put a little bit more teeth into that, and in mm-hmm. making sure that 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 goes through. At the state level, we've seen some legislation to set up uh, a health data utility and do more um, more kind of, you know, electronic health record sharing through that means. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, there's a balance here with the security aspect of this right. and making sure that um, we're, we're holding that healthcare data in a way that's responsible and, and balances those security risks too. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. what's going to be interesting is how MHA tackles in the future AI uh, as it relates mm-hmm. to, you know, some patient care and uh, collection of, of some important information. I think personally, and I know I get crucified every time I say this among some of my friends, I think it's going to be positive. Um, and, and I take it back to a presentation that we had here about six months ago, using AI to bill and finding mm-hmm. errors in billing codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an algorithm. You know, right. you know, if you come in for an XYZ procedure, it has a certain uh, code attached to it. Really, the presentation that we observed was cleaning up AR and some other things and some mm-hmm. coding could bring to the bottom line a million dollars to a hospital like ours. Mm-hmm. Imagine the use of technology in that terms for even recognizing algorithms and patient care. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think it could be important. I'm excited. You know, that's not even a question. It's more of a statement. <laughs> I'm excited to to see what the MHA does uh, in the very near future as it relates to technology well, and some AI. So. And that's mm-hmm. one where we're going to need the policy to reflect, right. reflect it, right? right? And so no state, to our knowledge, has come out with really good AI laws, but it's going to be one of those things where yeah. is Michigan going to be a leader or a follower right. in right. coming up with the laws of defining, okay, here's what AI looks like. Here's how yeah. liability right. is going to work. Is there a difference yeah. between AI and generative AI in yeah. terms of the regulation? Exactly. Well, it's yep. coming, so we we better be on this side of it. So, all right, let's transition a little bit. Uh, one of the challenges that face every hospital executive right now uh, is the inability to hire people. Uh, and we've had more vacancies in the history of this hospital over the last two years than I've had for decades. Mm-hmm. I will say and, our orientation, our general orientation every month, because I teach two hours of patient experience and orientation, we have had at least 15 new employees every single month for at least two years until this month we had like eight. And I was like, this is a tiny little group, even though back, you know, three years ago, that was normal. Well, I'll take you back to 2010 when I started. We, I did not on, so I started in May Mm -hmm. and I did not go through orientation until August of that year because there were only two people hired. In uh, that during that period, period. Wow. John Robertson and J.J. Hodshire. Wow. And we didn't get orientation because they said it wasn't Jedediah worth it. and Jeremiah, that, yeah, the two of you guys. Hezekiah. So uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, we are facing an unprecedented, unprecedented issue here of hiring and labor workforce. We can't pay enough, right? My competitor may offer a $50,000 signing bonus. I can't offer that. And that doesn't keep them there. That and keeps it also them, doesn't do anything for our employees who've been here the whole time. Correct. The, and I won't do it. It's That's why I don't do them, it. I don't frankly. do it because yeah. they're looking at me saying, we've been loyal to you, JJ, for right. 30 it's years. It's not fair to them. It's wrong. It's not fair. So we don't give the bonus and we find that the bonus doesn't keep, it doesn't create retention long term. Mm-hmm. So we're all fighting for the same nurse. We're all fighting for even the same scrub tech anymore. 
hard to believe that I have traveling phlebotomist here mm-hmm. uh, at Hillsdale Hospital. Who would have thought that? There's travelers in every you know, position now. Every it seems, position, clinically. it seems. And we're paying, you know, quadruple uh, because uh, at the height of the pandemic, we were paying almost $200 for a nurse per hour, mm-hmm. uh, which is unheard of. We'll talk about so, CENAs and skilled nursing. CENAs and skilled nursing, $75 to $85 to bring mm-hmm. a CENA in to cover in skilled nursing. And if we didn't bring the CENA in, I have to shut beds down which means right. the quality of care to my community is impacted dramatically. So um, I want to talk about upcoming healthcare legislation uh, that supports workforce development, recruitment, and retention for hospitals. What's yep. out there? What are you doing about it? So absolutely. No pressure. What yeah. are you doing about yeah. it, Adam? How have you fixed <laughs> it How you going to fix this? Yeah. Why is it fixed? So we have a, you know, we understand the fact that we need to do more and we have started focusing more on education Mm -hmm. than we ever have before. And this is one of those challenges where, you know, you look at the talking points from our industry from 15 years ago when we said in 15 years, there's going to be a a shortage of healthcare workers. And then 10 years ago, it was in 10 years, there's going to be a shortage of healthcare workers. We're 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 there there. now. We're there. What we weren't saying was there's also going to be a worldwide pandemic, the likes of which no one alive has ever seen just before that 15 year mark. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So things that we're working on are obviously you got the scholarship piece. Um, in Michigan, we have something called the the Reconnect program, which allows individuals uh, to go back to community college if they're over the age of 21, mm-hmm. completely free of cost if they haven't already achieved a degree. We amended that a couple of years ago in Michigan at the behest of the MHA. We amended that to include high demand healthcare credentials, so things like phlebotomy and other things that might not require a community college degree. That you can go and do that through the Reconnect program. So we're trying to expand that down to age 18 to lower the cost, trying to reduce those barriers for individuals to go into the field. The other thing we're doing is we're advertising now, and the Michigan Health and Hospital Association has been running a hospital careers campaign mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. targeted at individuals Pretty in 12th, 12th grade yeah. and under. Sweet. It's beautiful. A lot of people don't think about the fact that healthcare is one of the most stackable credentials that you can get. It's incredible. You can, you can mm-hmm. start as a patient care tech yeah. and over the years work your way up while you're working yeah. for the most part and become something like an NP. Mm-hmm. Um, How about here, a janitor that we put through school and uh, environmental service worker mm-hmm. who is mm-hmm. now up in our pharmacy. Yep, he's a pharmacy uh, doing, tech. Doing med rec and a variety of other things. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yes. And that's where we've seen our members who've had the most success. They identify those individuals who say, all right, this is a great, great employee. They're dedicated here. How do we, and it's an overused phrase, but how do we grow our own? Right. Because then you have better, uh, better retention, especially in Mm -hmm. rural areas. If you can get people from the community who like living there, who want to work there, who have family there, there, they want to stay there. Their roots are there. Yes. Their roots are there. You can have a, a tremendous amount of success. Yeah. And so we've got all of these these pieces working, but there are some challenges that we're going to have going forward. I think one of the biggest is healthcare is a hands-on job for mm-hmm. the most part, mm-hmm. right? And so we can't offer virtual options like a lot no. of other types of employers right. can, right. a lot of other industries have, and we have to have that in person. And that's where you've seen some folks doing some innovative things. The other piece is going to be childcare. Mm-hmm. It is. It's huge. And it's, it's an area where, you know, you look at the cost of childcare and it's such a challenge for so many people. Oh, yeah. A lot of people drop out of the workforce because of it. It. And yeah. so it's, you and know, it's not even the do. cost, it's also the availability. It yes. took us over a year to, to get, get our child into yeah. a Montessori daycare. Yeah. And before that, it was like our only other option was to pay someone hourly to have a, and it basically become a household employer yep. and pay employment yeah. tax and all of that and pay someone yeah. a wage to watch our child. But the initiative that, you know, and I have to commend the governor on this, you know, putting together a program, we're looking at it right now, cost share, where the mm-hmm. employer pays a third 
the employee pays a third and the state of Michigan pays a third. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can attract someone who's got children, but they're just unfortunately hampered by the fact that the cost mm-hmm. of that is prohibitive because I, I'm making as much as I'm paying in daycare. So if I'm not doing it for sheer love, right. you know, the economy's it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But the governor launched that, I think, is one of her initiatives. Uh, and I think that's going to be hugely successful. And that's another example of how do you ready your workforce, right? You got to right. have the workforce ready right. that yeah. are willing Sorry, to step up. Sorry, I interrupted you, Adam. We got on child care now, too. But no, you were I going know, through but a, you were. A, a So a go point, ahead. So. No, no, no. Well, one more thing on the child care. We do have hospitals who are doing that. Yeah. Have, have engaged in that model that yeah. uh, that the governor set up and doing that cost share, and they've seen great success on it so far yeah. with their with their retention as a yeah. result. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of those things. And we get discouraged because I look at my job vacancy postings, and I'm going, oh, how are we going to ever mm-hmm. accomplish this? But I think this too shall pass, uh, and that's through the work that you're doing at MHA to advocate for programs mm-hmm. like this. And really the work that the governor has done to prioritize Michigan Works. I'm on the state of Michigan's uh, mm-hmm. Michigan Works uh, Committee for Southeast uh, Michigan. And one of the things that we have really poured into back into our communities in the six counties that we represent is workforce dollars for micro-credentialing, forming partnerships for DOL, Department of Labor, to create internships and to create, you know, sponsorships for individuals to come in to hospitals. Um, And we were always kind of hands off. We didn't want volunteers in the house. We didn't didn't want to train them. You know, we were very selective. And this is why we're here today is because we haven't opened our doors. We open our Mm -hmm. doors here just about to anyone because we think that's an important segue. If I have 10 students that show up and I'm able to hire one of them, I've been successful. Mm -hmm. So the work that you're doing obviously uh, supports all that. Hard to believe we're almost done. But I want to ask you a question about you individually. What are you most excited about in the new year as, as you're looking at your job? And as you look at the work that you obviously love to do, um, what what's exciting you about the work that you're doing for 2024? What what what's what's on your horizon for you, Adam, in your professional career? Look, we have an amazing team at the MHA, you do. and our team you really and, do. It, it's fantastic. It's I know you've had a lot of them on the on the podcast. Hopefully, some more are coming up too. But um, our just our team culture, the, as you said, JJ, I think. You know, in our time of politics right now, we have a, an awesome opportunity to educate. We've just changed our term limits in the state of Michigan. We used to have some of the strictest in the nation. Folks are going to be able to serve for longer now mm-hmm. than what they were. So it goes from in the House from six years to 12 years. Mm-hmm. So what I'm excited about this year is taking the opportunity to build those relationships and to educate folks and be mm-hmm. really just be a resource at right. the end of the day for right. our lawmakers. So say, you know, when a bill comes across your desk, and you say, how is this going to impact healthcare? You call us up and we can walk right. you through exactly That's what right. the impact's going to be. Mm-hmm. So from 2023, when you set back, uh, you know, it's almost the new year. You're getting ready to ring it in with those, you know, very, very energetic children of yours. <laughs> and what do you? Th- what were you most proud of? The, the work that was done in 23 by uh, by MHA in your office. I mean, you, you have a, a great office staff and hard workers. What, what excited you about what you were able to do? What excited me about 2023 was the engagement we had from hospital leaders. Obviously, mm-hmm. we faced a tremendous challenge that we had to, had to fight back with a government mandate that would impact access to care. But the engagement we had in the hospital community, we had over 150 healthcare leaders come to our state capitol for our advocacy day. It's pretty amazing. Which Mm -hmm. was fantastic. And it was the most that we'd had, um, uh, certainly since I've been at the MHA. Um, And and the impact that had, you know, hearing from lawmakers was was fantastic. And so that's going to be one of the things that we want to keep that fire going Mm -hmm. into the new year here as well. 
Adam, you're a light in a dark world. Uh, for us, it's a lot of darkness that we're facing. Uh, not a day that goes by that my stomach's not churning about issues and uh, how are we going to make this all work? And, uh, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? And you help us uh, manage that very well. Uh, you lift that load in many of the cases because we can't do it alone. We're, we'd be an island down here if we did not have you and the MHA and the work that you do. So I want to commend you. You know, you. Um, a lot of times we put folks in the hot seat here, uh, but I'm going to tell you right now in this particular area, uh, we just have nothing but praise for the work that you and your team have done uh, in advocacy and working with our legislative bodies uh, and really sharing with them the why, why we need to sustain our hospitals. So thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm excited about 24 as well as a board member of MHA and watching the work that you you are doing individually and your team. Uh, I'm excited for some great things that are going to happen to keep our local hospitals, you know, functioning and sustainable into the future. So once again, thanks for joining us on Rural Health Rising. You're going to come back, right? Yeah, we're going to talk about what happened in 24. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right, we're going to do Put it. Put it on the books for next we year. Annual update. Yeah, annual. Mm-hmm. We're going to see all the great things that have uh, happened uh, here in the last year. So thanks for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And before we close, we love to do a fun segment. You said it yourself. You're from a rural community. That's right. And how big is your was the town that you were uh, It was about 4,000 people. Wow. That's like... 3,800 more than my town in Camden, <laughs> Michigan. So you even probably had a stop light in your we, town? Well, we have four if you count the flashing light. That's five miles Jeez. out of town. Oh, okay, town. perfect. That's, yeah. that's a yeah. lot more than we had. That's a so, metropolis. That yeah. is a metropolis. Big city. Yeah, that is. So you get back home a time or two, right? Yep, my Every, folks are still there. They're still there. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously you've lived a rural life. And so I want to know, and our listeners want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or something unique to rural life? Remember, there's some slickers listening to this podcast. Oh, man. They don't know anything about it. We've had Bruce Caswell tell us about chickens that chased him down the road once when he was out <laughs> campaigning. We've heard it all. Maybe not. Tell us your story. Boy, I don't... Uh, I mean, my entire childhood, you know, whether <laughs> right. it's Friday night football games. Oh, yeah. Getting, Under the getting cars stuck in the winter and the summertime. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's wintertime out there right now, right? So I think one of my fondest memories is going to my grandparents' farm. We had a 1974 Articat snowmobile, snowmobile. and oh, wow. riding the toboggan behind that was a blast and that i think fun? that's something that not everybody does no um but it's sandwiched with some of my you know worst memories which is it would always break down as far from the farmhouse as possible and the coldest <laughs> oh, no. day and the coldest day it'd be like zero degrees <laughs> and you don't wear your gloves and uh, so you know i might need health care services someday from right. for my uh for my rotator we'll take good cuff care of you. from we trying will. to do the pull yeah. start too we yeah, got we a got, great shoulder we got three orthopedic surgeons <laughs> yeah. one certified in shoulder well that's great so those are the memories of rule obviously that shaped and fashioned you to who you are today and we're very proud of the work that you've done thanks for joining us today thank you Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com. 